G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Previously on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. (laughs) We learned about the creation of man as God's image bearer, who does God's work and is expected to do it his way, ruling over the living creatures of the earth with care for their needs. And we saw how that implied a responsibility to care for the earth itself, despite the focus of the text being more concerned with living things than with the environment as such. Yes, and we managed to tackle those heavy issues. Also, we're having a laugh about a B-grade sci-fi horror flick from uh, Stephen King and an Akadaka music video. Um, And that thing about the the hornets in the Bible was quite interesting and how you could find other examples, as you mentioned, in modern culture as well. I hadn't thought about bugs as the tools that God uses to get some stuff done. But as you pointed out, Tim, it sure makes sense now that I think about those plagues in the Exodus. Yeah, it's certainly one of those things that you just don't think about until it's pointed out, and then you notice it everywhere. Yes, like when you buy a car and then you notice all the other people that have the same car as you. Yeah, or you buy I'd a car imagine. and find lots of small bugs in it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, get a refund quick. Uh, okay, enough talking about bugs and cars. Um What have we got for this week? This week we'll have a shorter episode. We still have a bit to say about the creation of man here in Genesis 1, but we'll do that and conclude the chapter as well. In the last few episodes for this season, we'll touch on other issues arising from Genesis 1 that we didn't get to spend much time on. But for now, we're going to read the rest of the chapter and talk about a few points here to give you some perspective. Here's the reading from Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31 in the NIV. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now what we really need to talk about at this point is the plural language in use when it comes to mankind. We talked about the plurality around God in the previous episode, but the plurality of man didn't really get addressed, so let's talk about that. The first thing we need to be aware of is that Genesis 1 stands alone from Genesis 2 and is not to be read as some sort of a rough outline, which had to be clarified and fleshed out with Genesis 2 later on. And I have to say that because we have people reading Genesis 2 as if it is some sort of a retelling, a redefinition, or an update, or a correction of Genesis 1. People want to do that for several reasons. Often it's because the idea that two successive chapters appear to be describing what we call creation seems repetitious, despite the vast array of differences in the two accounts. But for many, it's because they notice that in Genesis 2, we have the creation of man, and then we have the creation of woman, but Genesis 1 doesn't do that. People see these two accounts, you know, they look at Genesis 1, they look at Genesis 2, they think, hmm, they both sound like creation to me. They must be telling the same story, but there's differences. We, we have to reconcile these differences. Otherwise, the Bible is contradicting itself. We can't have that because that will give the atheists a foothold. So now we've got this effort to harmonize the text, okay, because we assume they're telling the same story, so we've got to blend them together somehow. 
and that means smoothing over all the differences by finding a way to make them both true at the same time uh, and, and tell the same story, to, to make the same point. And we've got to make sure that the historical facts presented here mesh in neatly with one another so that everything works out and we can point to our science and we can point to our history and we can point to all our modern views of the text and say, see, we can smooth out all these difficulties and now we don't have any problems. And when we do that, we're missing the point entirely. We're missing both narratives. Both of the stories, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, for a start, they don't need to be telling the same story. They don't need to be making the same point. And we need to stop trying to blend them together and force one story out of two because we're just yeah making a huge mess of it. In Genesis 1, God creates both. In fact, when he creates mankind, the implication is that there is a quantity that is unspecified, that God creates both male and female, and the plurality there is never brought down to specific numbers. So we have the possibility that there's some kind of a population. Hold that thought for later on when we address questions in Genesis 4 about people outside of the Garden of Eden. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We haven't even mentioned Eden yet, and it has no place in Genesis 1, because it isn't a place in Genesis 1. So rather than reading all of that extra text, all of that later stuff into Genesis 1, we need to stick with the text, and that's going to help us get the theology straight to prevent creating our own narratives and telling our own story that isn't written in the text. The danger in failing to recognise mankind in this text, in our desire to give preference to Adam, is that we run the risk of giving exclusively to Adam the responsibility and authority that ought to have belonged, rightly, to all mankind. So I should clarify that in Hebrew, the word that we often translate as mankind is Adam. This word shows up as mankind or man, also as a man or the man, and it gets used as the personal name of a particular human who is, of course, the biblical Adam. Of course, that character hasn't yet been introduced into our story, so when I talk about mankind in Genesis 1, the usage of Adam is limited to humanity in general, humankind, male and female, and once again, we don't know how many there were. It's important to maintain that distinction and be aware of this different usage that is found in the subsequent chapters of the primeval history because the author is using these different nuances to communicate very important truths about humankind, and they're lost on us if we assume that every use of the Hebrew term Adam means the same thing, in particular if we conflate them all as this one individual who is named Adam. Hebrew grammar has gender attached to nouns and quantity, whether it be singular or plural, attached to the verb, so we are able to determine with some certainty what the particular referent is each time we find an occurrence of the word Adam. This is important because it demonstrates that all mankind is accountable to God because all share in the burden to uphold that responsibility. All were given the blessing of God and the divine mandate to go and make more bearers of God's image. Now I hear you all yelling at your devices saying, What about Adam? What about Eden? How can you give the authority to rule the world to everyone? Well, I've said it before, this is not Genesis 2. We're going to talk about that next season, but for now we need to be content with what this text says now, instead of insisting on pulling all of our theology from the rest of the Bible and forcing it in where it wasn't intended. This isn't Adam, this isn't Eden, and this text tells us that all humans, all of them, were set apart for glorious purpose. By the way, Chris, when you had long hair back in the day, you could have been a walk-up to play Tom Hiddleston's Loki. Oh, my hair was Steven Seagal levels of awesomeness. It was the 90s.
it, it was magnificent. So, uh, yeah, for, for folks that uh, that can't imagine that, just think of um, Tom Hiddleston with uh, Chris's face. Because, yeah, it's pretty, pretty much that. Apologies so to not, Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> <laughs> that's not even much of a stretch, I reckon. <laughs> oh, you're uh, too kind. Uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, glorious purpose. Wow. It, isn't it interesting that that show came along and immediately the talk about uh, virus uh, mutations that we got all these different strains suddenly changed to variants that that word mm. entered the, the vernacular <laughs> as soon as yes. Loki came out. I found that very interesting. True. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's an interesting one. But anyway, uh, I'm rabbiting, rabbiting off here. Yeah, so our purpose to, to represent God by doing his will on earth as it is in heaven and blessed to do so together. So, so that means all of us. And, you know, to be honest, uh, I don't care about gender politics. If you prefer humankind, that's fine. If you're going to insist on mankind and womankind or something, just uh, just just know that I'm laughing at your lack of perspective here. Because if you're making this about gender, you've exactly and completely and entirely missed the point. Before we get too carried away with our own glory and greatness as God's chosen image bearers, we need to remember that this text does not intend to puff us up, to make us vain, or make us proud of ourselves. We're so quick to see ourselves as the pinnacle of creation, God's greatest achievement. We don't stop to think that we were given the job of looking after everything else. Literally, our job is to consider everything around us as more important than ourselves. We were not the first to be blessed. That privilege went to the fish and birds on day five. These are not the fish and birds mentioned on day six, by the way, and if they were the first to be blessed, then that makes them preeminent. The unseen representatives of God are given favour and status that we do not possess and should not aspire to. They have a unique purpose and function that differs from ours. That's why I alluded to the Lord's Prayer just now. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not me dragging in theology from the New Testament after I just said not to do that. I'm hinting that perhaps Jesus knows that God has divine representation in heaven and expects us to be his representation on earth, because both the seen and the unseen living things in Genesis 1 were commissioned and blessed to do that. But then God has always shown a certain favour to the secondborn, the younger son. We see that pattern throughout scripture, whether it be with Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, or with Israel and the Gentiles in the first century. So surely, apart from the blessing, we must still be special, right? Because after all, we're better than the animals, are we not? And yet God in this text tells us that we must share their food, that we're no better than them, that it is our responsibility to serve them, not to eat so much as to starve the little creatures that God made and not to act as though the whole earth was given for human pleasure rather than divine purpose. I mentioned this before. This text was not written to tell us that eating meat is a sin. Instead, the purpose of the text in telling us that the plants were given for us to eat is to remind us that we must share the resources of the world with all of God's creation, even the little animals. There is no prohibition on eating meat given in this text. And as we will see later, it appears that there is an expectation that sacrifices ought to be presented to God in a fitting manner. As I've already said before, a sacrifice was a shared meal. Humans eat it too. There is a distinction to be made though between the seed-bearing plants and fruit that God gave to man and the green plants that God gave to the animals. Firstly, every green plant includes all plants, so the animals can eat whatever. 
The plans given to man, however, are more specific, and if we're not careful, we can misunderstand the distinction. The plants for humans are the ones that require agriculture to make the most of. Seed-bearing plants like grain crops, etc., require a sophistication that animals can't muster. Similarly, fruit crops take a degree of organisation and technology that remains uniquely the purview of humanity. That's not to say that a horse can't eat an apple or a human shouldn't eat spinach. These are general terms and the point is that God is encouraging agricultural development, not specifically limiting diets. And agriculture in ancient times necessitated the use of livestock, which helps us understand why that distinction among the animals was necessary. I also wanted to mention that the text tells us clearly that God pronounced that his creation was very good on this day and that is important. We have to make sure that we don't lose sight of it in light of certain theologies that have crept in in the last 500 years that aim to separate mankind from the goodness of God's creation. There is no justification for the idea that man was not created good, but we do need to be careful about our definition of goodness. As we mentioned before, this is functional ontology, and by that standard, goodness is fitness for purpose. In other words, can the creature do its job? And the answer is yes. At least, that was the original situation before sin entered the world. The instruction to go forth and multiply is to the Christian a reminder of the Great Commission given by Jesus at the end of the book of Matthew before Jesus ascended to heaven. And even in the ancient Near Eastern worldview of Israel, that same meaning holds true. To go forth and multiply does not necessarily imply the necessity of procreation, but rather the furtherance of divine purpose throughout the world. That purpose is intrinsically connected to the representation of God and the bearing of his image through the carrying out of the work of God in the body of humankind. This finds expression in Exodus 19.6, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Exodus 27, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Traditionally, we evangelicals have taken the approach of prioritising the role of sexuality in the instruction to go forth and multiply, which says more about our own culture than it does of that in the Bible. The obsession with sex and sexuality has blinded us to a text that speaks of equality in function and in status. God made both male and female for the same purpose. He blessed them both and gave both the same instruction. Now I'm not saying there isn't a sexual component, but I think we make too much of it generally. I feel like I shouldn't have to clarify this point, but I'm going to anyway because it amazes me that so many of our brothers in Christ Jesus have failed to recognise that the representation mandate applies to women as well as stated in the text that God made them male and female. In other words, he gave them the same function. There is an equality in function here that the church historically has neglected. I do believe that things are slowly being set right in that area today, but it's hard going for women in general, and not only women, and they have endured so much. Just on a personal note here, and this is dangerous, but I actually do have an opinion on this, I really think that the whole identity issue creates more problems than it solves. For me, whether you can do a certain job in church doesn't depend on what body parts you were born with or whether you prefer blue or pink. Stereotypes irk me. Seriously. And I really just want everyone to participate in the work of Christ instead of finding reasons to exclude others, whether it be on the grounds of sexuality, colour or any other thing. As long as a person meets biblical standards for service, let them serve. We need not fear tyranny in a biblical home or church. And tyranny is exactly the thing that this text is targeting. Look at the things we covered since we started looking at the creation of man. We talked about a responsibility that came from God in the presence of the divine council. So we know that our actions are observed by multiple witnesses who will hold us accountable. 
as an example, look at Job 1 and 2, and you'll see how God's divine counsel are involved in not just witnessing, but also interacting in our affairs. And if you ever wonder why life seems to get chaotic when you've just learned some great lesson that happens to relate directly to the difficulty you're having, that's one reason why. We also know from this text that we are designed by God to be filled with his manifest presence. And that means that we are operating with a deficiency until we come before God. We need to align ourselves with his will in order to have God's presence and power active in our lives. We learned that we have to care for all the creatures of the land, not just ourselves. And we found that having dominion means to take responsibility for the whole world. Not because it belongs to us, but because we have been entrusted with its care. As an extension of that, we also looked at the use of resources and our need to share with the creatures God has made. And we covered the plurality of this dominion. It doesn't belong to one man or one couple or one gender. It was given to all humanity. We've come to the end of Genesis 1. Are we doing the Sabbath next time? Uh, not quite yet. I want to talk a bit more about this whole image-bearing thing before we tackle Day 7. So next week, we'll finish this series on the creation of man that we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. And then things will change up a bit. But for now, a slight change of focus as we get into giant warfare. That's what we call these segments where we give you, the listener, the tools to break down the attacks and schemes of the enemy. We call it giant warfare because we're either talking about how to deal with demonic attack or how to resist false teaching, which I'd imagine is prevalent, Tim, on the Nephilim. Look, it's so, there's so much false teaching, there's even false pronunciation. Yeah, that's right, Chris. I spoke on an earlier episode about the concept of genealogical descent as opposed to genetic ancestry and the DNA of the Nephilim. In that episode, I mentioned that DNA can only be traced back 10 generations or less before it becomes indistinguishable from the general human genome, and therefore nobody is able to go back many generations in the past and demonstrate any connection to the Nephilim in terms of discernible traits or bloodline or anything like that. We debunked the idea of a Nephilim profile with things like excessive height, red hair, double rows of teeth, extra digits and that kind of thing. But I want to talk a bit about this idea of people having Nephilim blood. So I have to ask Chris, what's your blood type? I actually uh, donated blood last week and I know that it's A+, which is a score I never got in school. <laughs> ah, Same as me. There are many people who believe that since they were born with the Rh negative factor associated with their blood type, which is rumoured to be connected to the Nephilim. This calls into question not just their ancestry, but their salvation and even their humanity. So the question is, does the Rh negative factor actually prove any connection to the Nephilim, to the fallen sons of God, or to Satan himself? Or is it just another human trait among others with no particular meaning or significance at all? Believe it or not, I'm actually raising this issue because I've been personally contacted by people who've asked me these questions. I've been dealing with people who are wrestling with these issues. People who seriously worry about their own salvation and their humanity. So this is actually a very serious issue because if a scientific fact can call into question your status as an image-bearing human being, then does your allegiance to Yahweh bear fruit at all, or is it misplaced trust? And perhaps more ominously, are there image bearers of Satan lurking among us, perhaps even looking just like us, infiltrating our communities, even our churches, 
We need answers to these questions because they are damaging to people's faith. It's quite a sad thing to come across somebody who feels like they've lost hope, mm. uh, you know, because they might have been, you know, raised uh, Christian, you know, part of the church, felt like they were doing everything right, and, you know, they get intrigued by this Nephilim idea, so they start looking into it, and then somebody says, you know what, you might even be one yourself you don't even know, you know. Like, just look at your blood type. Mm. And then it's mm. like, what? You know, because, I mean, your blood type is a fact. I mean, someone uh, yeah. you know, tests your blood and comes back and says, this is what your blood type is. Then it's like, oh, okay, well, this is a part of my identity, right? You know, I mean, genetically, this is me. Um, and it's incontrovertible. I mean, you don't get to go and, like, get a second opinion. Oh, no, it turns out I'm not. Like, it's, it's pretty black and white. It would so, be a pretty cruel God to create people who have no option of redemption. Yes. And that's something I keep coming up against over and over and over mm. and over again as I explore these uh, issues around the Nephilim. Uh, because it, it points to this on so many occasions that that's not how God operates. I mean, no. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to be tackling these questions one by one so that we can address this problem and hopefully spread some good information to mitigate the flow of false doctrine surrounding these issues. Retrospectively, I suppose you might call this part two of a Q&A series on Nephilim bloodlines. If we count episode 13 of this season as the first part, there will be more. So what is RH negative anyway? What is that? Blood cells have membranes made of proteins. There are different ones. One in particular is called the D-protein or D-antigen. It used to be called RH, short for rhesus, and in common use, it still is. It was discovered that rhesus monkeys don't have this antigen. Because of this peculiarity, the protein became known as RH antigen, even though rhesus monkeys don't have it. Like the rhesus monkeys, some humans also don't have the RH or D antigen. This is a condition known as RH negative factor. Now, just to clarify, blood types like A, B, or O, etc. are usually talked about as positive or negative, like O negative, for example, and that is a reference to the RH factor. So your blood type might be A, and if you have the RH antigen like most people do, then you're A positive. If you don't have the RH factor, then you'd be A negative, and that's how blood types are classified. So the negative means you don't have the D or the RH antigen, that particular protein isn't found in your blood. This means that RH negative isn't a blood type, it's a factor of blood type, and it's a protein deficiency rather than some kind of extra ingredient in your blood. Now, you can't influence this by changing your diet or something. Your body manufactures these proteins according to your genetic coding, your DNA. So either you got it or you don't. That's a matter of heredity. Before talking about heredity, though, we need to know what's so special about the RH factor. People have been claiming in the past that the RH negative factor in their blood has given them special powers and abilities ranging from healing to psychic powers, high intelligence, sensitivity to the paranormal, electromagnetic influence, and more. And the claim is that this factor comes from a non-human or even extraterrestrial point of origin. Scientifically, we ought not be surprised to find that the human genome contains influence from a variety of early sources. For those who hold an evolutionary view of human origins, it would be the most natural thing in the world to find that human DNA has inherited traits within certain localised early populations 
that later became a minority trait in the wider human population. And that goes back to which particular pre-human species gave rise to the eventual humans in that local population. These things are near impossible to nail down with any precision, but we can be fairly confident that the unknown factor does not necessitate proposing alien or Nephilim origin. Again, it's a recessive trait, so it's not like we're talking about the introduction of foreign DNA. That's not how it works. About 15% of the human population is RH negative, and being a recessive genetic trait, you need two RH negative parents to produce RH negative children. One thing that happens with RH negative mothers during pregnancy, if the child in the womb is RH positive, from an RH positive father, remember the RH positive trait is dominant, the mother's body recognises the child's blood as a hostile intruder in the mother's body. And without medical intervention, the mother's immune system can attack the child's, which can result in the death of the unborn child. This only happens with that particular combination of RH negative mother and RH positive child. And that's the interesting thing about the RH negative factor, right, is, is the royal connection. So the whole British family has it, the whole British royal family. Most US presidents had it. And so it must be something special among the global elite. Illuminati confirmed, you heard it here first. Well, it sounds special until we consider what I was saying the other week about genealogies and the way they work. If the royalty of Europe really were protecting a sacred Nephilim bloodline, then what they needed to do was a far better job of keeping it in their pants. Because most people of nobility at one time or another had a fling with an ordinary person from the common class, or quite often, lots of them. The result of that interbreeding is that every European alive today has connections to royalty in the not-too-distant past. And that's only Europe. Most Americans today have connections not only to Europe, but to a president somewhere along the line. Same goes for white Australians like ourselves here. So here's the thing. Not every sexual partner that an RH-negative person may have is going to be RH-negative themselves. In fact, it's an 85% probability against RH-negative. So as the well-known promiscuity of these so-called royal elites carries on, not only does their bloodline diminish any alleged purity, it also disseminates their traits out into the broader population. Over time, we all end up genetically common. There's nothing special about being able to get on one of those ancestry websites and find some highfalutin ancestor. And as I mentioned before, it's a recessive trait, a protein deficiency, not some extra DNA coding and certainly not something that comes from preserved bloodlines. Now, I talked about the evolutionary perspective, but you might not buy that because you hold to a young Earth and a relatively recent human origin. So in that case, there's no evolutionary trail winding back into the distant past where this genetic trait could have originated. So now you have to propose an origin story for RH negative that comes about within the last four to 7,000 years. And that's where the idea of extraterrestrial, and depending on your worldview, you might call that angelic origin, appeals. Because we have that in scripture, if you consider the sons of God in Genesis 6 to be the culprits. So this is what the ancient aliens crowd have been waiting for. As I've already mentioned several times, RH negative is a recessive trait. That means you can't introduce it into a population because the negative trait only survives if both parents are negative. These fallen angels or aliens or whatever you want to call them would have to be breeding only among themselves to preserve the absence of the RH factor, assuming that they have that condition. So what does the scripture say? This is Genesis 6 verses 1 to 2 from the King James Version. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, 
that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Well, it's pretty clear to me, they're not breeding among themselves. It says that the sons of God took wives of the daughters of men. These are two separate groups. If we're proposing that the daughters of men are ordinary humans who can only be RH positive, then every child conceived by these sons of God, which we're assuming are all RH negative for some reason, would turn out to be RH positive. So that doesn't work at all. In fact, the only human origin theory that can account for the absence of the RH factor is the idea that it might be a loss of genetic information through natural selection. But that doesn't work either. Assuming a young Earth and a recent de novo creation of Adam and Eve, we would be forced to assume that both Adam and Eve were RH positive. If they're both positive, then so are all of their kids. If they're both negative, then a young Earth creationist can't account for the introduction of additional DNA in the presence of the RH antigen. So that doesn't work. And if one parent was RH negative and the other RH positive, then they'd only get RH positive kids and the negative trait dies with Adam. There just isn't a scenario where the young Earth model accounts for RH negative factor. Now to be clear, I'm not doing this to use science against young Earth creationism. That doesn't work because people who hold to one of these systems generally don't believe the other. I won't be wasting my time trying to make people believe one or the other. For those who came in late, my primary concern is that we understand scripture correctly. If science can teach us facts about the world God made, then I fully expect that those facts will not contradict a correct understanding of God's word. Because God is the creator of both his world and his word. If there's any discrepancy between the natural world and the Bible, it's only because we understand one or both of them poorly. So I leave it to you as a listener to decide for yourself. Maybe go back over the episodes we've done in the past this season and pick out all the stuff that's stood out as weird to you. Is it making sense yet? Anyway, we're off track. Getting back to the RH negative traits, what about these special powers people claim to have? Surely if people with a certain genetic trait have extraordinary abilities or powers, we'd expect more than anecdotal evidence, right? We should be able to test these things to get results. Well, apparently not. Studies have been done on this, they never found anything. I realise that's unconvincing, because anyone can just claim cover-up, like the way they do with alleged giant remains, or UFOs, or UAPs, whatever they call them today. Uh, it is easy to say that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. But the fact is, plenty of people experience these phenomena. Psychic powers, high intelligence, healing, sensitivity to the paranormal, electromagnetic influence. And they're not necessarily RH negative. These are ordinary people. I'm suggesting that in line with the science on this, there is no evidence of correlation between the presence or absence of the RH antigen and any kind of metaphysical influence or anomaly. In other words, it's absolutely irrelevant what your blood type is. These things happen to all kinds of people. So this idea that there are people among us descended from the Nephilim or from aliens, the product of some secretly preserved royal bloodline going back to the time before the flood, and, and I don't care what your flood model is, it's just unsustainable for anyone who knows even basic 8th grade biology. You don't need to be a scientist to be able to pick that theory apart. Just a clear thinker. <laughs> don't you think, though, Tim, that there's going to be people at home saying, but I'm RH negative, I thought I was special. What about them? Huh? Huh? Mm, fine. Yeah, look, I've been talking this whole episode about how everyone wants to be special or significant or important. You want to be special? Aim for a big reward in heaven. Live as someone who sees everyone and everything else as more important. Take care of yourself, but don't make your life about you. 
because it isn't about you. The big thing people talk about with blood types and genetics is how closely we match with the apes and how it shows that we likely descended from them. We're basically another kind of animal in the world, but one thing that distinguishes us from animals is our ability to put others first, to give someone else an advantage in life, to not cling to our own advantage, but to sacrifice for the sake of others. Animals don't do that, but God does, and he calls us to do that. That is the mandate of Genesis 1. Take responsibility for others and ensure they're flourishing. That's not an animal trait. That's a learned behavior. That's picked up by modeling after someone, reflecting their behavior, imaging them. We can do that because God has made us to do as he does. Instead of yearning for your own significance and looking for something that makes you special or gives you an advantage, turn that mindset around. How can I benefit others? What can I do? What can I give? It's not about me. Mm, absolutely excellent point there tim and we do tend to make it all about us unfortunately which is why paul said christ must increase and i must decrease uh do you have any more points for people to take away with uh and think about from this week as we wrap it up for today yeah well that's probably the biggest takeaway from all this but a few other points one you you might have the rh antigen like most people or you might not you're still just as human as the rest of us. You're not the offspring of the giants or aliens or the seed of the serpent. We'll talk more about that in a future episode soon. You know, monkeys and horses and other animals get this too. Are they Nephilim? No. Uh, number two, if you have experienced paranormal phenomena or you have some kind of psychic gift, there's nothing to say that it comes from your blood. Rather than credit your ancestors, and as I said before, if you go back far enough, we all have the same ancestors. Give glory to God by using it for his purposes. Number three, the human identity isn't tied to a pure genome. Do you realize that about 8% of our DNA is virus antibodies that we've collected from fighting viruses or inherited from people who had infections in the past? When you get a cold or something, or even a virus like the one everyone's talking about at the moment, these things add to your antibody collection in your DNA. None of this makes you less human. And the precautionary measure, if you get antibodies injected into you, it's no different. This stuff doesn't transform you into some kind of antichrist. Anyway, I'm shaking my head. <laughs> uh, point four, last one. The, the idea that you might be genetically connected not to Adam, but to Satan or Semyaza or Belial or something, it's a lie. As I said before, you go back 300 years or 10 generations and there's not a single ancestor that contributes a thing, anything at all, to your DNA. You're a pure-blood human through and through, and there's nothing in all of history that can change that. There's no blood type that makes you ineligible for salvation, regardless of how human or otherwise you think you might be. It is adoption into sonship that makes you part of the family of God, not a biological connection. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for. We'll see you next week when we finish this series on the creation of man in Genesis 1. God bless. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. 
in the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I mean, that's why it's so important that we truly believe that what God says about us is true. Because mm. if we don't, everything else is so easy to unwrap and fall apart. I mean, if we can't stand upon the truth of who he is and who says we are. You know, it's, what is it, Ephesians 4 about uh, do not be blown away by the men and their deceitful scheming and the cunning and craftiness and all that. Yeah, it's just so easy to be swept away if we don't have that firm foundation. Swept away if we don't have that.